sum up. So what, what we got to, right, the end of the fifth chapter, we did a whole footnote last time. But the basic story is that we're talking now about the human in the image of God, right? What it means to be B'Tselem and Akim. And the fact that we span, in a certain sense, we have, like, everything inside us. So we have all the material of the, of the creation of the universe, of every animal. We've got some kind of link to all parts of the, of the world. And also the spiritual worlds, the inner worlds, all the way up and down, right? That's the principle. And we said that that's why when the Navi, when the prophet sees an image of the inner workings of the heavens, he sees an image of a human being on, on the throne, which means when he's looking at the will of God, already there, the soul, the collected soul of what's called Adam or Yisrael or whatever is, is already right up there. Um, and that's, we're rooted in that, right? We have access to that. And in receiving the Torah, we got even more access to that. Now, but we need clarification. What's the non-clarification? Um, because the very last paragraph of the fifth uh, chapter said, it quoted this, It quoted the Arizal. The last is Vital is the student of the Arizal who wrote down all his works. Right? The Arizal, as far as we know, didn't write anything. Is made the main with things that we call the Kisve Ariza, the works of the Ari, Ravita Gloria, that really give the, the um, I guess, the most popular, most prominent um, f- philosophical clarification of all and interpretation of, of the Kabbalah. That is written by Rabbi Vital, and he says in the Shah Kadush Chelek Gimel Shabbos, he quotes that the idea, the line that it uses, that the soul of the human being is the deepest of all the levels and all the worlds and all, all the way, all the way, all the way, right? It's a long, it's quite a long piece over there. It's about two paragraphs long or a paragraph long. And basically the, the, so you got the inner levels and the inner levels and the inner levels and the level right at the almost that highest point, you could say, is, um, is this, everything we've been talking about. So he's saying, Adina in but we need to clarify this point. Why? So in other words, what it means is, in a way, the soul of the human being is like the soul of all creation, right? Or the soul of, uh, right? Kihuzal, he puts in brackets, a very important rule if you're ever going to start really learning proper Kabbalah works, Kabbalah Swaran. Kihuzal Dibba Bekotre Derech Katsara, because he spoke in his holiness in a very, very brief way. Kedarko Bechol Kisekotre Benestaris, which is his way in all the holy writings he has of the hidden matters. Like he says in the introduction to the Eitz Chaim, right, to the Tree of Life, that's the name of the book of the collected writings. That he reveals a tefach, like a fist amount. Right? Sometimes the Talmud, the Gemara discusses, you reveal like one fistful, but you hide two. He says about himself, I'm revealing one, one hand breadth, one fistful, but I'm hiding 2,000 arm cubits, basically. So, so that's like 12,000 times or 10,000 times more being hidden than being revealed. And I don't think he made that. Those, those are not completely uh, random exaggerations. He's saying that the amount that's being concealed in writing that's revealing is deliberately also being written in a concealment way, which, by the way, um, is not just true for Kabbalah. It's true when the Rambam gives his way of revealing what he believes the rabbis are talking about in the, in the more deeper mystical stuff. They're all doing it the same way. They reveal a bit, but they're deliberately also concealing. Amongst the reasons why is because it's so easy to get this wrong. 
And the minute you talk about, even you can hear these words, the image of the human, you can easily see why subconsciously so many religions end up worshipping something that looks like a human. Because somewhere programmed into the depth of creation is this imagery or this sense or something. And, and that is very dangerous because the minute we worship something of human form, the minute we do anything like that, we're a step away from worshipping the human. In fact, it's so natural to project ourselves onto God and God onto ourselves, right? There's many different ways in which we do this very subtly. I think we've discussed it before, but it's just worth saying out. So it's very likely early pagan religion, you know, an ancestor would die and they'd assume this ancestor somehow had control over things. And gradually, you know, that would be one way of assuming creating uh, humanoid gods. And as time went on, they, they mythologized it. But even the attempt to try to control a world you can't control, so we need rain and it seems to behave a certain way. And so you start to imagine it, you realize there must be forces driving the world. You start to think of them like humans, right? Because it's natural to project ourselves onto stuff. And even then when you get philosophical, you realize that all finite things once did not exist. So there must be an infinite first cause or something like that. A non cause is not in space, not in time, not, not made of space or time. It's still naturally to project natural to project humanness onto it. And so I'll give you an example. The Rambam describes the path to idolatry as even, even if you start from Hashem, right? You still, you get to say like this, well, I, I don't care about this infinite God. I care that it rains. I care that the markets do well. I care that the property prices go this way. The war goes that way. So if there's, as, as we've been talking about here, between God and the world, there's many, many, many layers of, of things. If I could just manipulate some of those programs on the inner level, then, you know, and that's where idolatry starts to be. Well, which bits can we connect to? Is there, is there a bit that we can call the force that brings this into the world or the force that generates that in the world? Could we, what do we take to manipulate those things? Offer them sacrifices? give them power, like pray to them, like, well, what do they do? And next thing you know, you got all these different gods around. Again, this is probably very, very metaphysical or very spiritual. But in the end, that process, what's wrong with that? It's a desire to serve me. You see, when a person in the, in the pagan idolatrous world serves something to the rain god, it's a business deal. It's a transaction. Give something to the rain god the rain god will give us rain right once you come up with the notion that god is infinite meaning not in space or time there's nothing he's thinking the universe into existence there's nothing anything in this universe can actually give god we can give god's will we can give god's plan we can give god's presence something but we cannot give god in essence anything which means we cannot manipulate god so Everything becomes God is trying to give to us, but what God wants from us is no longer some goods or some praises or some prayers or some sacrifices that somehow feed God. He'll discuss later on what they really do. What does prayer do then? Right? What do sacrifice in the temple? What, what were all these things about? But they were never to fulfill a need or a lack in God. That what God wants from us is, a, is, is the desire to be like him, is the connection. God's offering us essentially a relationship with him by being like him, right? Which means caring about others, bringing the world to perfection, bringing his will to the, to the world, etc. So it's a God-centric picture of reality. Up till the point where God is infinite, it's a human-centric picture. 
we're, it's a me-centric world. And because I'm the center of reality, in the end, all religious worship is just a way of worshiping the self. And worshiping, you know, they're worshiping the rain god, but they're just really worshiping themselves. It's a trick to get the rain. That's all. They are the center of the world. And that is why, part of why it's so natural to humanize the gods, to deify the human. It's all the same thing. So one direction is, I'm the center of reality. How do I get the whole world to serve me, including God? Or divine forces, or spiritual things, or supernatural. How do I get everything to serve me? Right? Um, the next thing that happens, of course, is that if there's any God out there, it's me. So if I've got a character problem, like I like to have an ego and be in control, then that God up there has an ego problem and he wants to be in control. And so now I justify any character flaw I have. You see, if, if that's how the pagan mind thinks. So suddenly the gods are uh, having affairs and the gods are killing and the gods are controlling and the gods are looking at power. You see what's going on? But it all begins with the self-centeredness. To completely, on the one hand, rid all of that. That's the real, real depth of pure monotheism. The idea of a God who is totally unlike anything in creation. The real depth of creation chapter one, Genesis, Bereshus chapter one, is the depth of if God creates heaven and earth, then God is not made of heaven and earth. If God creates light and dark, God is neither the God of light nor the God of dark, right? And is, and is not made of any of these things. So what's happening is by abstracting God that far, on the one hand, we are, we are, ridding the possibility of being able to manipulate and control God. And in a certain sense, we are then completely de-self-centerizing the world. But then we could make God so abstract that we can't have any connection to God, can't have any relationship with God. And the Torah is full of God is in a relationship with us. So that's what Kabbalah is doing. But you have to be very, very careful because you walk, walk in this very delicate line of how do you have this relationship with God? How do you talk about God willing the human, the human being being so central to creation without then turning the human being into God, right? Back again, subconsciously. And then from that, you know, there it can go consciously. So this is very, this amongst the issues that would, there's just some of the reasons why you got to reveal, but conceal, reveal, but conceal, reveal, but conceal as you go deeper and deeper in these things. <laughs> the Ramesh. Yeah, well, that, exactly. The minute you're not dealing with the same God, you're dealing with the, the world of fragmentation because I want this, you want that, right? So we may emphasize different, again, if we became pagans, one would, one would push for one, one would push for the other. The gods can be at wars with each other. You justify every human vice. and every, That's why all naturally developing civilizations, once they became a certain size, emphasized power. As far, at least as far as when I last studied, a few years ago, I studied uh, archaeology and ancient civilizations. It seemed that way that everything you dig up, everything you read about, they're always worshipping power. 
and there's always social hierarchies and there's always the belief that the poor are meant to be poor. These things are quite, there's always suppression of education. There's always there, you know, the disabled children almost always killed, etc. So it's very much power driven, the world on its natural basis. So it has very practical ramifications as well as, uh, you know, the Torah is a very revolutionary document in, in human history and shaping the values of the world, you know, spreading via other religions and all the ideas. So this is very real. It's, it's, it's not just a theoretical thing. But yes, amongst other things, it pulls apart as well. Recognizing we all come from one is a recipe for eventually bringing everything together. Okay. So that's just a little brackets. You should not think from the line that we read from the Arizal, you should not think that human to the world is literally like a soul to the body. By soul here, he's meaning the lower parts of the soul that we might call consciousness, the mind, which is very intertwined with the brain and body. But the point is this. Where everything that the soul, or let's say, let's use the word mind for now, does, it does only via the body, right? We can't express ourselves unless we use speech, uh, gesticulation, face movement, right? Motion or, or actual action or motion, but all of them are bodily things. And of course, we're firing neurons up and down the brain and then the mind and the brain are totally interconnected. Or, or perhaps even different properties of the same sort of thing, whichever way. But but at the same moment you think it, the body does it. There's an immediate causal connection where the gap in time is actually imperceptible to us. So the the body is totally under the control of the of the mind, the conscious mind, at least whatever the conscious mind can control, and the conscious mind completely can only express all through the body. But the intimacy between those two is total. That's not what's going on when we say the soul of. Adam is all the way at the top of, of creation. Okay. Um, now, he's going to explain what is going on. Let's do the next paragraph, then we'll go back into the footnote. The fundamental point is, Hashem may be blessed, uh, his name, once he created all the worlds, after he created all the worlds, the human is at the end of creation. The human develops after the animals and the spiritual worlds and all that stuff. Brianifla, an incredible creation. It's a power that integrates all the different dynamics and aspects of, of creation. All, it includes all the sparks of the lights, the wondrous lights in the worlds, and the upper chambers that came before. And all the structures of the glory of Hashem, the revelation of Hashem, that are in the, literally means the chapters of the chariot, but it means the sections of the vehicle of the revelation of God's light in the world. Right? So all of the elements of that are somewhere embedded and embodied within us. Now we said last time, all our soul, only the bottom actually enters, like the foot of the body enters the shoe, so the lowest part directly enters, but all of it impacts. The foot is impacted by what's going on in the heart and the liver and the kidney and the brain. So everything's impacting what goes on in us. So indirectly, we're being touched by all of this. Cholokot has brought him in all the individual little energies. Everything that exists everywhere has some connection to us. Every one of them gave an aspect of themselves into what becomes the human. 
And ultimately they're within us, every little muscle and nerve, and this has some, and, and neuron has some relation to the, to any part of all, any of those worlds have some, something mapped into us or connected to us, or at least on the spiritual level of us and vice versa. There's a, there's a, like a one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, the way we work physically, mentally, spiritually, and all the structures of the revelation of God coming from the highest place downwards. Okay, and he's going to bring proofs. Now let's look at the footnote. Now he hasn't yet answered the question fully. He then goes lots and lots of quotes. Um, okay, now let's go a few paragraphs down after all the quotes are finished. This is all the human. This, by the way, is a quote from a pasuk, a verse in, in Beratius in, in Genesis. It's, uh, well, um, sorry, this, sorry, in, in Kailas, in Ecclesiastes, in the, uh, in the end of it. Right. Uh, this is the whole of humanity, right? Is, is, and now, if you look at the Pasuk there, if you look what it says there, the verse there says, the end of day when everything's been heard, after all King Solomon, all Shlomo Melech contemplates about all of life. It said, fear God, and keep his mitzvah. This is the whole human. Right. So you think, so why do you need the whole book of, of Kailas, all the chapters of Ecclesiastes, he thinks maybe the wealth and maybe this and maybe this and maybe this to reach that, just come with that conclusion. The answer is no, that conclusion makes sense after everything else because everything is included in that conclusion. So he's saying the same thing, this is the whole of what it means to be a human. Every minute energy, force, power within us is corresponds to either an entire world, a framework of reality, or one uh, energy point, light channel, something from the entire structure of all the powers and worlds that are structured in a relationship with one another that if you mapped it mentally or physically, you would come up with something that looks like the human mind and human body. Which we're going to discuss much later on in greater length. Okay. Are you still there? I think I've lost you on screen. Okay, fine. So my, my screen's gone black. I can't see anyone. I can't see another. Okay, fine. Good. Okay, people there. Very good. Now let's go back and do a footnote. Right? That occurred after the first paragraph. Okay. Now it's true. Now this he's doing a very amazing thing. I, I, you know, there's something very beautiful he does, which he, in his footnotes, which again are not needed for the main flow, He's adding more information that really helps you understand things, but he's also not just enriching our understanding and showing how it flows into other parts of Torah. But in a sense, he's building ideas that we're going to elaborate upon later. He's giving you a little flash of light to show you what you're going to get to later on. And the reason it's important to now is he wants you to get a glimpse of where we're going, but he's going to take more steps to get you there. But by giving the glimpse, we're now going to be consciously or subconsciously reflecting on it as the remaining pieces move, and then he'll spend a whole few chapters developing what he's going to do in this footnote. Okay? So these footnotes are very exciting. And sometimes they don't do this, but this one does. The Gamshalapizahvade should be there for Shabbat. When we say the words of Kadush, he's now entering, by the way, into a potential major debate. And the debate is this. We know there's a principle, the rabbis tell us. We read in the prophets, we read in, in the Navim, in Yeshayahu, right? In Yechazkal. When they have to, what they call Maise Merkava, the inner workings of creation. They hear the voice of, let's call them angels for now, as we'll discuss it more. We've already discussed in the past how they're not exactly the way we think of angels in English. 
but they hear these voices and they hear words like Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzavakas. Holy, holy, holy is uh, Hashem of hosts. The world is full of his glory. And they hear blessed is the glory of Hashem from its place. Now we say that every day, several times a day in Kedusha. When, the, when you have the Amid, you have the silent prayer, the Shemayin Asrei, and they repeat, the Chazan repeats, then one of the highlights is in the third bracha, we say Kedusha. And we literally say, We will sanctify you here the way they're sanctifying above. In Sfarad, it's a slightly different version, but the same principle. We are going to do what the angels do. And we do it early in the brachas around the Shema. We do it, we do it in the end of, of Shacharis in the morning services. We do it, and we do it in the Minchas. We do, we do it a lot of times in the day. And... Exactly, exactly. We lift our heels in that point. Exactly. I'm enough of yes. Well remembered. Hundred percent. So, but also what we're told in the Gemara is that the Malachim wait for us to do that. Now, there's a bit of discussion or possible discussion as to what is the relationship, the causal relationship between us doing it and the Malachim responding. And what he's going to tell us is it's not a direct causal relationship. It's like if if you start singing and then I start singing as well. Right? It's a choice to respond. It's, whereas if my brain says, okay, come on, body, sing, it will immediately sing. It doesn't have a choice not to. Right? So it's not exactly that relationship. And that's the difference between soul. It's not exactly soul to body. So let's look how he says that. It would, because if it was, it would necessitate the moment we say Kedusha down here, the exact moment. They would exactly with us do exactly the same thing, right? They would they would be responsive uh, to all of that. There would be no gap. Um, and yet the rabbis tell us in the Gemara and Chulin, they don't say Shira above. They don't do the singing or the praise or anything above until we've done it down here. And he's going to say, which sounds like until we finished it down here. So it's not a neuron firing in the mouth and the vocal cords vibrating and the sound comes straight out. That's not the relationship, right? Um, Shanam as the Pasuk says, Randy quotes, Boron Yachad Part of first... You hear like the stars of things, then by then, then the angels sing. So that there's a gap between um, the response we make to the stars in the morning, to, to, in other words, the human first praise Hashem, and then the angels do. At least the natural way of understanding the Gemara of after we've done it, they repeat and then they do it. Sounds much more like shame. They don't even begin to praise their creator until we've done the three main bits down here right um, now he is going to elaborate on this in later on chapter 11 we're going to have a whole chapter dedicated to this right and and even then we're going to ask ask the question why does he need to even elaborate on all this right but there's there's going to be a lot of importance to it as we'll see and in fact, that's what we have when we get to the Atta Kodesh. Right? Every day in the third Bracha Shemaines, say the Atta Kodesh, your holy, the Shimcha Kodesh, your name is Kodesh Shimcha Yom Elochasela. The holy ones will praise you every name, every day. 
right? And, and, and that again is that is that we're saying kedusha, and then we're effectively inviting the holy ones, meaning the malachim, to say it. Um, Hagami's going to say it's not so simple because there is militia desire. There's a language in the Zoyar. It does sound like it's simultaneous. Literally at the same moment. Why does the Zoyar say that? He says it's not the correct interpretation. It's because it's Tukufa Mamash, because it is very close in time and it follows immediately after we started. Right? As soon as we finished, it's called one. So in other words, it's a bit like, um, I'm trying to think what an analogy, analogy for this is. Like when you go on, let's say, in a military thing where someone says, sounds like this, and you've got to immediately shout a reply. So clearly there's a causal relationship between the two, but it's not body to soul. That's not what it is. Okay? Now let's jump to the second. Uh, in fact, you know, maybe that's, we'll finish here, and we will go to the second footnote um, Next is a very long one. The next one we're going to spend and have some real, real time on. And what's going to happen is we're going to next I deal with the whole hate of other Mauritian, the whole sin of man, right? What happens in the sin of man? Um, what, what happened before? What's going to happen afterwards? This is all very exciting. Uh, it's actually one of the most important. I mean, there's so many important footnotes here. Right? I told you chapter six, the thick of the Perikvav is something we're going to spend probably, probably a good two, three weeks on. So this is kind of just the beginning of it. Um, but let's sum up what we said. Yeah. What's that? Oh, he, yeah. Yes, 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 correct, correct. This is a long chapter and it's got lays a lot of foundations, right? Really, really does. I'd say by the time you finish the sixth chapter, we've really laid out most of the foundational level. I told you really the third chapter says everything, but you got to really unpack what's in there. By the time you finish the, the um, sixth, I guess maybe seventh chapter, um, to a degree, we've kind of laid out the first major layer of foundations very, very strongly. And then he's going to build upon it and start to talk about how our actions impact the world, eventually talk about how our speech does, how different parts of the soul work like that, how we can do Teshuvah if we do something wrong. And then from all of that, when he's got that map complete, he'll give us uh, kind of the conclusion of all of that. So there's still quite a lot to do, but we're very close to having the major foundation. He's really clarifying the relationship between Odom, right? This is the collective soul, if you like, and the world. And this is that's got to be really clarified and tightened and to then develop it further before we're able to then start talking about how, in, how it works on the individual level and so on. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of big stuff. Just, 